Father, we thank you for this day, for the opportunity to study your word together. I pray that you would be honored by what we do here, Lord. We ask that you would open um, the eyes of the blind and give the people that are deaf the ability to hear and receive what you say to us. Lord, we know that there are some here that have never been uh, born again, that do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray that you would help them see and understand. And Lord, I ask for those who are Christians here, that they would be strengthened in their faith and they they would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So remember, we're in Mark. We've been studying Mark for some time. This is a large passage today. It's not going to be easy to keep it all probably in your head. We're going to try to bring all of that together, and hopefully you will be able to see it um, and see it in a way that would help you understand how you might live differently uh, as a result of knowing these things. Um, If you'll remember, too, that all of this stuff is, um, the Scripture says, Acts 2.23 says, even the sins of the wicked leaders are a part of God's plan. Uh, the scripture says that Jesus was delivered up according to the def- definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so we are in this Passion Week. We are on Wednesday. It is God's plan. All of this is coming together as he sees fit. Uh, in Mark, we go to the temple three times with Jesus, um, and we are on this the third time. And so it's just helpful to understand that as you're kind of moving ahead. Uh, the temple is the first time he's alone, uh, the second time he condemns it, and the third time he's questioned about his authority. And so you'll see that on display as you were re- if you're reading this with us and thinking about it. Um, the anger and the frustration of the leaders is high. I mean, Jesus has been building that at one level, and then they are just wretched people, and they hate him. They want nothing to do with him. They don't like what he says or what he's doing. And they're going to seek today to undermine him in every way. And it's going to be like through three waves. The first wave is going to be, uh, Jesus is going to have a confrontation with the Pharisees and the Herodians. The second wave will be with the Sadducees. The third wave will be with one scribe asking a question. And then they'll be quiet. They'll get enough of that. They don't want to hear any more from him. He is not somebody that they can like uh, really address or deal with. And so they'll kind of get quiet, and then he'll go more on the offensive. And you're going to see him give a warning. He's actually going to confront some of their teaching and then give a warning, and then he's going to teach us kind of a valuable lesson. And so hopefully you'll see that on display again. You think in terms of Jesus on the defense, Jesus on the offense, and that's what's going on today. Um, And then also, I think it's just important to think, now everything is about his authority. It's all about undermining him. That's what they want to do. And maybe you've been at the, the hands of wicked people or at the tongues of wicked people before who sought to undermine you, and that is difficult to experience. But Jesus was prepared for every task. They had nothing to say to him that he could not address. And so I think it's important to say to you this morning, like, there is no middle ground with Jesus. You are either for him or against him. If you're here today, You're either for him or against him. You cannot stand up to him. You will not be able to fight him. You either are for him or you're against him. And uh, at the heart of the Christian gospel is that. You're either bowing the knee or you're like standing up and saying, I'm going to fight. But if you stand up and fight, you will lose. 
And I hope you can see that today as we spend time together. Um, one person called this whole section, Render to God what is God's. Render to God what is God's. And we'll see that. Hopefully you'll be able to see that underlying kind of theme. The first section is going to be about, should we pay taxes? The next, what about the resurrection? The next, what is the greatest commandment? And then we'll see false devotion to God and true devotion to God. And so you just think about that. Again, Jesus on the defense, Jesus on the offense, and you'll see that as we go forward. So let's look at the thing about paying taxes. Some of you uh, would look at our government and say, with the people of this day, uh, the common consensus of the people would be, we shouldn't pay taxes to such a horrible government. They don't deserve our tax money. They're going to waste it anyway. And you would want your Messiah, maybe that you have in your mind, to stand there cheering with you and would probably get mad and try to look for another Messiah if he didn't. That, that's a scary thing, don't you think? Like if you were, Jesus was to show up here and he came preach this Sunday morning, you're like, I'm out of here. He doesn't think like me. That's, a, that's spooky to me. But anyway, what you see is there are the Pharisees and the Herodians. And um, this is like an unholy alliance. These are two people that are vehemently opposed to one another. But in this case, they're united. Whenever you see, I don't always think about the Andy Griffith show, there were this husband and wife, they're always fighting. And when they're fighting, uh, they were nice to everybody in town. But when they started saying, yes, dear, and I love you and all that kind of stuff, they hated the whole town. It's finally like the town was like, y'all just fight. You know, we'd rather y'all throwing dishes at each other. Or what, you know. But that's kind of how this group is. It's, um, these two would be against one another. The Pharisees are the conservatives, and the Herodians are kind of the least religious. One group was like really, really, really spiritually minded in one sense, very, very conservative about the law. They kind of built a fence around the law, protecting the law. And uh, they were legalistic about it. I mean, they were counting down every little detail of every little thing. They had hundreds and hundreds of laws that they added to everything. Uh, that's kind of how they were. The Herodians were politicians. And uh, they followed Herod, who was like what Israelite, real Israel people would say, it's a false king. He shouldn't be there. Uh, Herod was committed to, to the Romans. And uh, the Herodians uh, had a lot of wealth and power as a result of their connection with Herod and Rome. And so these people come together, which is um, strange. And the Pharisees would be like, they hate Jesus, maybe you could say his theology. The Herodians would hate his politics. So maybe you've been in, in a place before where you're like, well, I'm going to join sides with the enemy to defeat the greatest enemy. That's kind of what they're doing. Okay, so um, they flatter. That's how they start. You know, sometimes you know, like, really corrupt people, when they start flattering you, they're really good at telling you how much they think of you. Um, and that's kind of what they do. They start with that. And um, Jesus isn't fearful or swayed by the opinion of others, and they knew that, and they said that. They were actually saying some true things about Jesus. 
Um, most of the time when a, a leader is told like all these things about them and somebody like says all these wonderful things, they loosen up their lips, you know, they start to say things that they shouldn't. And so um, I think it's important to kind of see that and understand that. So when you're looking at this, they're kind of asking the question of like, should we pay taxes? And uh, it's actually, it's not the, the biblical tax kind of temple tax or something like that. It's a Roman tax. Should we pay uh, that Roman tax is kind of the question. They thought they'd trap him. Like this would be a great way to trap him because if he sided with the people, uh, the people of Israel, uh, then they would, uh, like the Romans would be able to like go after him. And uh, the Herodians would be like, look, he's trying to start an, he's an insurrectionist. Like we got to kill him, you know. Um, if he sided with the, uh, the Romans, then the people would be like, he's no person that we want to follow. He's not our Messiah. So that's kind of going on. Now, the other thing is, this is a poll tax for like their daily wage, a denarius or denarius, some people say. Um, it was a silver coin, and it really, it had on it Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So it had like this thing where the uh, people would look at that, and they would be like, this is almost like carrying around in your pocket uh, making an idol. It's like an idol uh, to a, this, this person that's claiming to be God. And so uh, then on the other side, it calls him like the high priest. And so in both ways, they're like, this is ridiculous. We are not uh, contributing to this or being a part of this. We don't want to. And so that's why they were kind of dealing with it in this way. They were asking this question. It was really for Jesus, you could say, a lose-lose thing. And they knew that. Um, actually, a Jewish person would like pay with it, their amount that they owed with shekels so they wouldn't have to touch that coin. You know, and so when he asked to look at it, that was a little bit, uh, you know, somebody probably were like, somebody that had it was like, I better not, you know, I dropped it on the ground. You know, somebody picks it, oh, here's one right here. A Jew would never have one of those, you know. But anyway, you're looking at this and you're thinking about it. And one of the things um, that you see is Jesus is going to look at it and he's going to say, who's on it? And he says, oh, Caesar's on it. Well, do you owe money to Caesar? You got to pay taxes to Caesar? Okay, then pay taxes to Caesar. It's kind of those things like you owe the tax, you pay it. That, that's what you do. And that's what he says to do. That's what Jesus says to do. That's what Jesus says to do. That's what Jesus says to do. Is that clear? I mean, that's important, I think, for us. Government is instituted by God. Ultimately, at one level... The government that was there is Jesus' government. Just like you may have heard somebody say, the devil is God's devil. He owns everything. Everything is submission to him, in submission to him. And so that's what you see. If you turn to Romans, we're not going to do this today because of time, but Romans 13, you can mark this in your mind. In 1 Peter 2, verse 13, I'm sorry, Romans 13, 1, 1 Peter 2, 13, Titus 3, 1, Read through those sections there, and you'll see uh, that this is not only what Jesus said, but also uh, the apostle is reiterating this, uh, and, and, and Peter reiterates it. But governing authorities um, are there, and you'll see Jesus deal with this even with Pilate. When Pilate says, I have the authority to deal with you how I want, he says, you have no authority that's not been granted you from above. And so in that Romans 13 passage, there's no authority except from that of God and those that exist have been instituted by God. God put them there. God put them there. So I think that's a big deal. 
They are ministers of God. And the reality is, you drove on roads today. You drink water, most of you probably, from water treated, you know, through a government. You have a military. There's a lot of things you would say. I don't think about those things very often, but um, let somebody stop doing them, and you would start thinking about them pretty often, you know? And so that's kind of where it is. So the first thing Jesus does is he is going to say, you should pay your taxes. Uh, and again, it's rendering to Caesar what's Caesar's, but we're still thinking about rendering to God what is God's. There's things that God would help us see and know that because ultimately behind even Caesar is God. So obey God. Um, then we have this resurrection question, and the Sadducees show up, and they are not like the layman kind of Pharisees or hyper-religious people. Uh, they were the powerful, wealthy, influential kind of aristocratic people in that culture, and they were, uh, they were pretty liberal. And they were pretty liberal because they, um, uh, they almost don't even really believe in the power of God anymore, you know? They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in a lot of things that... But because, you know, when you have everything and you're the most powerful people in the world or whatever, you don't need God, kind of. And so they took away kind of his thoughts about his power and those kind of things. And they focused in on the law of Moses. They would take the first five books of Moses and they would focus in there and they would say, it, talks not, it doesn't talk about the resurrection and it doesn't talk about this and that and kind of reduce a lot of those things down. And so they would focus in in that way. Acts 23.8 says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisee acknowledged them all. And so you kind of understand that uh, this is where they are. Now, they would, like I said, they would law, like argue from the law of Moses saying like, look, it doesn't speak of these things. And so this is another question that comes up. But they get this random thing about like what happens, because this is kind of a law in Israel if you were to look it up. Uh, you would find out in Deuteronomy 25 that this is the case. But they get in this thing of like, if a guy does not have a child and his wife, I mean, he dies, his wife is left without a husband and there's this uh, brother that doesn't have uh, a spouse, like he should marry her and like continue his brother's name and then the, the children following that, they'll continue in kind of his name. So it was a way of protecting the... Um, uh, the families, it's a way of protecting the inheritance. It was a part of those things. And so um, that's kind of the issue that's going on here. They're asking this question as you move down through about that. They're kind of asking a question about the resurrection and kind of about the marriage thing. Really, I think the marriage thing is just a way to see if they can make him look foolish and he will not be able to answer what they needed answered. Now, first thing to say is like uh, the Bible does talk in the Old Testament about the resurrection. I'll just say that. You can write this verse down. Daniel 12, 2 says, And many of those who were asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting content. And so there are passages like that. There's Psalm 73, 24, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Uh, David, when he lost his child, said, Well, I'll see him again. You know, he's thinking about uh, a future with the Lord. So all of that is going on. And you just have to think in terms of that. So um, I think what you see here is Jesus is going to answer them. And he says, you don't, you know, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So he's going to say, look, y'all don't really understand the scriptures. You've really not grasped those. And you don't really understand God's power. You have not rendered to God what is God's in the sense of like 
submitting to his authority and his power and his greatness. And so that's all on display. But look at verse 24 through 27. Is this the reason you're wrong? Because you have, you know, neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So Jesus says something, they're like, really? And so at first, when they would hear that, they might say something like, um, hmm, I don't know what to do with this. He just told me that in the future, like, no marriage and no children being born. and Yeah, that's what he's saying. That is what the future is like. You will be like the angels in heaven. And so they're maybe not, they're like, okay, that sounds good, but convince me further, uh, which they didn't want him to. But this is what he says. He knows what they love. They love the law. They love those first five books. And he says, I am the God, look at that, of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, you are quite wrong. What's he saying? When it says that in Exodus 3, 6, he's saying, those Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're not dead. They're alive. I'm the God of those people. Their spirits are with the Lord, you could say, and they have a future with me. You can hope in that. Do you not read the, 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 why don't you not read that? How did you miss that? So you have these guys coming, and they're struggling with all these things, but he's saying, like, don't you understand? Here's the thing. The resurrection is true. God's power is true. And you can trust him uh, for this and that he will bring all of these things about. Now, that doesn't mean, like, if you're a kid here and you're like, well, should I never get married? No, go get married. Have a family. No, it's momentary. Some days you'll want it to be. Some days you'll want it to be eternal. Like, I had a professor one time. He was like, Oh, he's like, um, I just can't imagine, like, not being married forever. And I, and I think, yeah, that's, that, that is something you think about. But then, like I said, there could be a day where you're like, I can't imagine. I'm thankful that there, you know, no, Anna, I'm just playing. I'm just playing. But you're looking at it and saying, like, won't this be wonderful? Like, in heaven, we won't have to be married anymore. No. But, but it's, it's interesting. Like, you think about that, and you consider that, and you say, okay, this is how it is. The resurrection is a reality. Um, we will be body and soul forever, and we're awaiting the future of that. And so it's a beautiful thing to know. So Jesus is really difficult to deal with on the spiritual leaders. Um, he, he's saying, like, you know, you, all this stuff's God's. Like, you give to God what is God's. You give to Caesar what is Caesar's. No, behind Caesar is God. You, you give your life over to his power and trust that he's doing his work. Now, we go to this next one. What is the greatest commandment? Um, this is from a scribe, which may have been a Pharisee. And this scribe, um, or maybe not, we don't know exactly. Sometimes they, they were. But this scribe comes up, and he's wanting to know, um, what is uh, the greatest commandment, the most important of all? Now, that was a big discussion uh, among all these groups. They would be interested in it. I mean, the Pharisees, like, they love to talk about all their laws and which ones were most important. And you know how, have you ever been on somebody that's, uh, they always have a question about the thing that doesn't really matter in the Bible? I'm sorry, if you've come to me with one of those, like, it is weird, generally, right? But, I'm just kidding, y'all can smile, but it is a little bit. Don't come with me with, like, you know, come to me and say, like, let's look at, like, what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? Not some random thing that doesn't really matter, 
you know. Uh, the reality is they would come up with stuff like in the resurrection, I heard this week, I was with somebody, and they said they would even have questions about, you know what, in the resurrection, like, will they, uh, what kind of clothes will they be wearing? The clothes they were wearing when they die? Or a new set? You know, they would argue about all these weird things. Well, they were always asking about these questions of like, what's the most important and what really matters? What is at the height of this? This, this scribe here doesn't seem too... Uh, he doesn't seem like kind of jerky or whatever, but that may have all been planned too. Uh, but he seems to just be asking the question in a, maybe in a more thoughtful way, like what is the answer? Uh, but this again would put Jesus in a strange place because you would think, okay, depending on what he said, if he pulled something out of maybe what he had been teaching, you know, rather than what uh, they thought, you know, what, what, what would that look like? So anyway, he responds which to us, you'd be like, the thing sometimes closest in proximity is the thing you miss. But Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, uh, most Jews were required, or they, if they were practicing, they would say this twice a day. It's called the Shema. And that's what they would say this over and over. It is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's a little bit just different if you look at the Old Testament versus the New Testament. There's a little uniqueness there. Um, but at that same time, it's just saying, listen, God is God. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. He alone is God. And you are to worship him as the one true and living God. He is a jealous God. You're to worship him only with all of, with all your being, with everything that you are, your whole being, heart, soul, mind, strength like your emotions, your spirit, your intelligence, your will, all of these things. He wants all of you. You know, Christianity is an inside-out thing. It's not, it's working from within and it's bullying out. That's kind of the way you need to think of it. It's, it these things are not the source, but the means. You know, it, it's, um, sorry, it's from the source of these rather than the means of, is what one guy said. It's saying like, these things should bubble out of your heart. It should be going on in your heart, longings there um, to do what the Lord would have you do. Now, this is the heart of the new covenant that you need to be changed because here's the big deal. How many of you today have loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? The best, your best day, your best day, your whole being, really? Your best day, your whole heart, your whole will, is that, has that been true of you on your, on your best day? I, my answer would be no, not even on your best day. It's, um, this is call, a call to perfection. And so verse 31 says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Self-love is a bigger problem in this culture than like, not thinking high of yourself. A lot of times, I think that people will say, um, well, they have a low self-image, and really they're saying, no, they have a super high self-image, and they want everybody to agree with them about how much they love themselves. So that when they're not being treated fairly, they're saying, like, I just need them to show their love for me and, and lift me up. And it's like, no, you probably don't need that. What you need is for them to um, love you truly, no doubt, but not to like make the most of you. You don't need to. Be, you're already your biggest fan, you know. 
And maybe like this morning, you prepared a long time so that others would be your biggest fan too. With how you looked, what you said, your responses, the way you smiled at others, all that stuff. So, um, and maybe that's the biggest problem in your marriage is not that um, you don't love yourself, is that your spouse doesn't love you as much as you love yourself. Right? That could be a troublesome thing. Okay. So, anyway, um, this would fly in the face of the culture. This needs a strength from on high to do. You must be born again to walk in the power of this. Now, verse 32 to 34. And the scribe says, you're right. You're right about that. What you say is true. He repeats it. Um, and he says it's greater than all these other things. And it really is what the kingdom is all about. Now, Jesus says, you're getting close to the kingdom, bud. The only problem is, is he's close to the kingdom, but he may not enter into it. You know why? Because he doesn't know that Jesus is the only one that ever lived up to it. That's why you need him. Because he lived the perfect life that you could not live, and he, lived, he died a death that you could not die for yourself so that you could be saved. That's the reality of the whole thing. And so now, everybody's ready to get quiet, and they think a debate won't do. A debate with Jesus will never do. Although he's from the north, redneck kind of country, he's pretty sharp. It won't do. And so rendering to God what is God's, we should pay our taxes. God's instituted that. We should trust in his power. We know about the resurrection. We should um, embrace his commands, you know, because you know what those are. And then you've got to identify the, your false kind of religion. This would be really helpful. There's, this next step is like a false devotion to God. Because um, look at verse 35 through 37. Um, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David, Jesus says? The Lord said to my Lord, said it, David himself in the Holy Spirit, sorry, in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now this is interesting. Jesus says, now let me ask you a question, you uh, smart people. They're able to come to me and confront me with all these things. I'll ask you a question. And he cites Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm, or really, I guess, Old Testament text in all of the New Testament. And what he says is, The Lord, who is God, said to my Lord, the King, set at my right hand. And people would always think, this was about the Messiah. That's what everybody understood this psalm to be about, that. And so Jesus is saying, how could this Messiah be both David's Lord and Son, which is a really helpful thing. And uh, one writer, Edward, said that, that that is signaled in Jesus' final cinching question. How then can Messiah be David's son? It is the same question Mark poses to his readers. The answer, of course, is that the Messiah is not simply David's son. He is God's son. And he's standing before them. It, that's the question they needed to be asking. Who is Jesus? He is God's son, and he is David's son. He is both the Messiah, and he's the eternal son of God. That's the question you need to answer. If you don't answer that question, you will not go to heaven. You will not know God. You will not enter into a relationship with him. You will not experience life eternal if you don't know the answer to that question. 
So they started those questions. Jesus asked the final question. And then he says, beware the scribes. You know why? Because they love the place of honor. They want God's place. They want to be the most important person in the room. Um, they want to do it at the expense of the weakest, the most needy. They, that's, that's what they want. They want to go around and people honor them. You ever struggle with that? Wanting that? Wanting that for your spiritual life? I mean, seminary was just filled with young people wanting the place of highest honor. The spiritually minded young future leaders of the church. You know, it's filled with that. We str- I mean, we struggle with that. We struggle with that in our town. Like you want to be in the picture, the magazine that has the information about who's most important. You might struggle with that in your family or whatever it might be. I mean, it's just, it is a real struggle at whatever expense. You kind of want to say, like for some people, it's like, just don't tell me what you had to do to get us there, but get us there, you know? And I think both for the religious leaders and uh, just for people in general, these religious leaders were super wealthy people. And they were also, like a scribe was like an attorney. Sometimes they would use their influence to go to take like a, a poor uh, person and go out there and, and, and like, like with a woman that's a widow and say, I'll help you. And they ended up with those, their house. I mean, I read some things about that. And so you understand that. So um, what we see is, is there's this false devotion to God there are these people who are not rendering to God what is God's. If you're here today, I'd say, you want to render to God what is God's? Um, pay your taxes. You want to render to God what is God's? Like, uh, trust in his power and look forward to the resurrection. You want to render to God what is God's? Like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You want to render to God what is God's? Don't do the false devotion that gets the applause of men, but rather like true devotion that ends up with the applause from God, right? Verse 41 to 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. Mm, mm, mm. I mean, I bet that was a show, watching it jingle in the box. Ching, ching, ching. You know, if they'd had electronics, it would be like, by weight or by numbers, you know, just showing like, yeah. Anyway, many rich people put in large sums, and the poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contribute out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You know, in financial, from a financial standpoint, this is a struggle, I'm telling you, this is a struggle for all, I mean, myself, other people, all, all of us, where we might think, you know, that's, that won't make any difference. You know, that might be your tendency. That's not going to make any difference. Like, we need something that will, like, move the needle. We, we need something that will really move the needle. Um, but... Edwards said, in purely financial terms, the value of her offering is negligible and unworthy of compared 
to the sums of the wealthy donors, but in the divine exchange rate, things look differently. Is that crazy? In the divine exchange rate, it looks differently. That which made no difference in the books of the temple is immortalized in the book of life. For Jesus, the value of a gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. The sacrifice of all she had is the keynote, keystone in Mark's arch of faith. The initial call of Jesus to the fishermen beside the sea to leave all and come and follow me is perfectly fulfilled in the giving of the two simple coins. Check this is, I mean, Edward's really, I mean, I feel like hit it out of the park on this. I just want you to hear this. The chief purpose of the widow is as a model of discipleship. No gift, whether of money, time, or talent, is too significant to give if it is given to God. You remember that time where he said, like, remember those people that just gave you a cup of water? They just gave you a cup of water. But if it's given in faith, it is beautiful in the sight of, the, of God. This is a true Fulfillment of the call of discipleship by losing one's life. It is the picture of her laying down her whole life as Jesus will do at Golgotha. What about that? What about that? Is that not shocking to you? You want to know what it means to follow the Lord, to render to God what is God's? It's to pay your due in whatever society you're in. It is to trust in His power. It is to love like He loves. It is to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. It is not to be falsely devoted to Jesus or the Messiah to come, but to see the Messiah has come, to believe in Him and be truly devoted to Him. Following in His footsteps, laying down your life. That's the call. That's the call. People will ask me sometimes, like, what do I need to do to live the Christian life? You constantly live a life of giving yourself to the Lord. You give yourself back to Him. And I think that's important. You want to practice Christ-exalting self-forgetfulness. If you can do that, I lay aside myself, I exalt Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. What will it cost everything? What will you gain? A hundred X. That's what he told us a couple of weeks ago. So I pray for you today. If you're lost in your sins, that you would come and turn to Jesus. If you have been found and you're walking with the Lord, that you would return back to the things that you once held dear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for wisdom to apply it. We ask for the power from on high to apply it. We ask that we would love and treasure you like the widow with two coins who laid her all that she had before you. It is beautiful in your sight. We want to be beautiful in your sight, not because we think that by doing so that we'll somehow appease you, but we want to please you because of what you've done. Because of what you did at Golgotha, we now offer back our lives to you. And we thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.